Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. It's a very great pleasure to be with you uh, at this particular conference. Uh, As we start off, uh, let's just uh, pray together uh, and get underway. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, to reveal yourself to us. We thank you that by the Spirit you have illuminated our hearts to know him and to know you. And we pray that you deepen our love for you uh, as we think about these things over the next couple of days. Amen. Okay, now uh, with the pack that you were given as you came in, uh, you should find uh, a, uh, uh, a stapled together set of uh, lecture notes uh, entitled The Trinity and Servant Leadership. Uh, we're going to be working our way through these over the next uh, uh, few sessions together. Uh, and what we aim to be doing, of course, uh, is to make sure that we have covered how it is that the Trinity has anything to say uh, about the question of servant leadership. Now, uh, you, you may well find uh, that uh, if for some reason or other your attention wanders, uh, there are a fair amount of space so you can doodle uh, or indeed colour in uh, some of the diagrams uh, that, are, that are there. Uh, there's space for all that kind of thing. Uh, I won't mind uh, much. So we're starting off with the whole question, session one, uh, on page one of the handouts, of a private love. The significance of that uh, idea of private love uh, is one of the things that we're going to be uh, coming back to time and time again uh, over the next couple of days. You'll also see that we've got an opening quotation, we will not be taken in. Uh, And that's uh, actually taken from C.S. Lewis's children's book, The Last Battle. You may remember uh, that right at the end of time, as it were, in C.S. Lewis's parallel world of, uh, of Narnia, there's a group of people who refuse to accept their rightful king and who refuse to accept their rightful lord, Aslan. And what they say is, we will not be taken in. The force of the comment is to say we will not be taken in. And in a sense, what they mean is uh, we will not be taken in in the sense of uh, we refuse to be deceived. We refuse to allow anyone in authority to put one over on us. But of course, as you think about it, it has the deeper meaning as well. We will not be taken in. We will not be gathered together to enjoy paradise uh, for, for eternity. Uh, As I've been preparing this stuff, uh, one of the things that's uh, struck me, of course, is that uh, we live in an age uh, where authority and leadership, one way or another, is fairly problematic, uh, and we'll be dealing with a lot of that in this first session. But uh, behind it all, uh, over the next couple of days, there is the thought of, we will not be taken in. Why have uh, four sessions on the Trinity and servant leadership? Uh, Why not either have the Trinity just that or servant leadership, why the, why the double whammy in that kind of way. And I think we do want to say that uh, we, we raise this because there's a leadership problem in all kinds of ways for us, uh, both in our, our, our churches, probably in our culture more generally. And we want to pose the question, why is the Trinity a solution to that? In the course of doing that, uh, inevitably we'll be teasing out why it is uh, that as Christians we believe this distinctive Christian truth Uh, that uh, uh, God is both one and three uh, and uh, that 
so-called other monotheistic uh, religions uh, like conventional Judaism or Islam uh, actually are simply seriously wrong uh, about who God is. Why is the Trinity a solution to our leadership problems? Let me at this point start to develop uh, what the kind of problems are that we're talking about heading to uh, on the handout. You may find yourself thinking, you know, what problem really is there uh, in terms of leadership? What problem could there possibly be about servant leadership in particular? Because one, uh, we're good Bible-believing Christians and we know that the Bible mandates leadership. So Ephesians 4, 11, uh, of course, tells us about word ministries in local churches. It's a given in that kind of way. 1 Timothy 3, 1, uh, uh, of course, talks about uh, what it is that you should be looking for in presbyters. 2 Timothy 2, 2 actually encourages Timothy uh, to appoint people who will succeed him in the presbyteral office. Titus 1, 5, Titus's job on Crete is precisely to appoint presbyters, to appoint leaders. So leadership's a given. What's, what's the problem? Also, uh, of course, uh, we all know that Christian leadership is distinctive. So Mark 10, 42 to 45, uh, that terrific passage, uh, as uh, uh, you find the, the kind of worldly ambitions uh, of James and John, and indeed the other disciples, uh, rebuked by a conception of leadership that, that says, it is not to be so amongst you, What's not to be so amongst you? Well, lording it over people. Uh, What's not to be so amongst you? The idea of lordship. Uh, What should be uh, amongst you? The idea of servant leaders. Christian leadership, so the ideal goes, is distinctive. It's a a servant uh, leadership. And yet, of course, we know uh, from the last 2,000 years of church history that sometimes people have been servants Uh, in name only, and actually they have lauded it one way or another uh, over the the, the people of God. We'd also want to say, but look, you know, uh, actually even our culture uh, is catching up uh, on some kind of idea of servant leadership. So heading 213 uh, on the handout, the American management guru Jim Collins, uh, who's, who's write books like good to great and and that kind of thing, Uh, he will talk about a level five leader, the kind of leader who will take what is good and make it great. What's distinctive about that is, and this is really surprising from someone who's not writing from uh, an ostensibly Christian point of view, is you need the paradoxical combination of deep personal humility with intense professional will. But it's the deep personal humility that actually is the distinctive of level five leadership, which is the the, the top of his ladder, really. There can be all kinds of other talents, but deep personal humility. The leader who gives credit uh, and refers glory away from himself uh, towards others. And this is a secular management guru speaking. Now, at that point, you find yourself thinking, great, isn't it? Great, because uh, we know what the Bible teaches, Yes, there are to be leaders. Yes, they are to be uh, servant leaders. And what's more, even the world uh, is finally cottoning on to that. So, heading to two, why is there still a problem? Because problem there is, uh, actually, if we're honest, uh, uh, isn't there? Uh, you, you, you think of some of the tragic situations that take place in a church, 
the uh, breakdown in relationship between a minister or pastor uh, and congregation or church council. Uh, you ask the congregation, where is the problem? Uh, they will say the leaders. Uh, ask the leaders, they will say the congregation. <coughs> is that not all too often the case? That actually one of the most common kind of divisions that we have in our local church bodies is precisely the division between leader and led, one way uh, or another. And it's worthwhile uh, spending just a while in this first session thinking through how we've ended up with this. How we've ended up with this. What lies behind it in our culture. I think we want to talk about an Enlightenment legacy. Now, don't get me wrong here. Uh, you, you may well feel that all of the stuff that uh, I've just described about fallout between uh, leader and led, uh, that sooner or later that comes back to fundamental questions of sin. I think that's, that's true. But we still have to say, how is it that this disease is manifested in our particular context? How has it worked out uh, amongst us? I think if we were going to look for a big name here, uh, it would be, uh, I'm afraid, the German philosopher Immanuel Kant in the late 18th century. Uh, Not because he's saying anything particularly uh, brilliantly original here, uh, but simply because he puts it very well. So turn over the page. And what we've got uh, is uh, uh, an essay that Kant wrote, uh, 1784, uh, an answer to the question, what is enlightenment? And this is what Kant says. Enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-incurred immaturity. Immaturity is the inability to use one's own understanding without the guidance of another. And the flip side of that, of course, is what's maturity? Well, maturity, then, uh, is going to be making up your own mind about stuff without guidance from another. That's what you're looking for. And now... Uh, Kant is going to go on to argue, now is the time for maturity. Go on down to the last couple of lines uh, of, uh, uh, of, of this particular quotation. Dogmas and formulas, so things like the creeds that we uh, say, uh, prayers that we say like the Lord's Prayer, those mechanical instruments for rational use or rather misuse of his natural endowments are the ball and chain of his permanent immaturity. Now, just, just think, you know, who wants to be immature? Is immature a good thing or a bad thing? Actually, being immature is a bad thing, really, isn't it? So maturity, come on, dare to use your intelligence. Dare to know. Dare to make up your own mind. Actually, that's pretty much where, where Kant's coming from. Now, just kind of hear that. Because we, we sometimes talk about uh, this being a, a, a postmodern age or, or, or something like that. But actually, Immanuel Kant is, is right there uh, as a, a source material for both modernists and postmodernists. Why so? Well, diagram at the foot of page two. First of all, he's saying, My reason's competent. I'm mature. I'm a mature person. Because I'm a mature person, I am entitled to autonomy. That's the thing. I'm entitled. It's a big word, isn't it? Entitlement in our our culture. People sometimes talk about uh, uh, this being an age of entitlement. 
not necessarily even that I have to earn something. I'm, I'm just entitled uh, to it. There's an American uh, sociologist called uh, uh, Jean Twangy, and one of her observations uh, is uh, uh, that this is the age where someone has princess on board on the back of their car. What do they mean by that? They mean, actually, treat us as special, not because we've necessarily earned anything, but just because we are. And there is a certain irony in a Republican society like America actually having all these princesses, uh, apparently, uh, in their four-by-fours and so on. So competence of my reason, I am entitled to autonomy. Now, of course, one of the things that someone might come back and say is, but look, doesn't uh, postmodernism say that we, we can't make big claims about human reason and that kind of thing? How does that work? How can Kant uh, be a, a father figure for postmoderns too? Well, think it through, page three. If there actually is no universal rationality, then what? Is your reason any better than mine? If none of us have access to universal reason? No. No. Uh, You're not cleverer than me because none of us have access to universal reason. Your reason's no better than mine. That means, of course, since your reason's no better than mine, you're still not entitled to boss me around. I'm still entitled to be free because you've got nothing better to say to me than what I can think of for myself. Those of you with teenage children uh, at this point may well be thinking, oh, yeah... (laughs) And of course, uh, at that point, you, you have a, a couple of attitudes that very readily creep in, don't you? I'm as good as you, ism. So my judgment is every bit as good as yours. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and there you go. So again, the same sociologist, uh, Jean Twangy, has a fascinating series of, of stories uh, about uh, uh, PhD instructors uh, trying to teach people Uh, about the hard sciences uh, over on the west coast of the United States uh, and saying, you know, uh, when you do stuff to copper sulfate, this happens. Comes back with, well, that's just your opinion. The teacher grades the paper. Uh, They've got a a degree in the subject, a postgraduate degree in the subject, and they've been taught how to teach and to mark. Uh, And they say, actually, this is a solid B-. Pupil comes back and says, that's just your opinion. I think it's an A. I'm as good as, as youism, uh, and uh, therefore I do not have to listen. What goes with that also, of course, is a, a don't get in my way-ism. Because if my judgment is as good as yours, then surely I am entitled precisely to get my way Now, I'm putting these things in sort of fairly stark terms, and you may well think, well, uh, surely there are exceptions to this. And I think on the whole, one would say, yeah, sooner or later. But we are talking about a cultural mood here. And the cultural mood, box in the middle of page three, is what? It's egalitarian in one way or another. But as well as that, it's highly individualistic, isn't it? Highly individualistic. The it's all about me the song which says uh, my love for myself is the greatest love story ever told that sort of thing 
the ethic that says, before I love other people, I must love myself first. Egalitarian, individualist, and of course, suspicious. Deeply suspicious. Now, if you've got something going on like that, then actually there are going to be times when it breeds two oddly contradictory but related things. A kind of totalitarian spirit and also an anarchic spirit. Let me explain how I think this comes about. Uh, that uh, uh, I'm, I'm in, if, if you like, in an intermediate position uh, because uh, as a, a principal of a college, I have a certain amount of authority uh, over people under me uh, and I'm also accountable to people over me. When uh, I'm in the I'm in authority kind of mode, it's hugely easy to say the really important thing is that I get my way and that everything becomes totalitarian. Uh, When people question you and that kind of thing, those of you who are in leadership and say we want to know the reasons why, uh, you may sometimes find yourself thinking, well, it's none of your business, I'm the leader and you're not. That kind of thing. Then, of course, when I start relating to, for instance, central bodies within the Church of England or something like that, how do I behave then? Uh, Well, I start asking questions about why they're doing things. I start saying, you know, my judgment's every bit as good as yours. And actually, it's very easy to behave in an anarchic way towards those above me. Do you ever sense that? That actually, if you're the one who's been given authority, you find yourself thinking, look, actually, let's be serious about this leadership stuff. I want things just so. I really want things just so. But then when you're relating to someone who leads you, you're finding yourself thinking, no, 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 no. Uh, We've got to talk this through. You can't just impose your will. Does that ring bells? The way that, curiously enough, it can be a both and depending on uh, which particular hat you happen to be wearing at the moment. And when you're being the leader, uh, you feel insulted by the degree of suspicion uh, that is offered towards you by those that you're trying to lead. Why don't they trust me, is what you feel. And of course, if you're led, you're thinking, I bet they're really up to something. What really lies behind that decision? Why did they move the organ over there? Is there a body? How many? Uh, That kind of thing. So totalitarian and uh, anarchic. Now, think what it's going to be like for what's leadership going to look like in such a culture if you're led. How are you going to feel towards someone who leads you? And if you're a leader... How are you going to feel about those you lead? Just spend a moment thinking through those questions. What's it going to look like? What's it going to feel like? I wonder if, from the point of view of being led, one of the things that we don't frequently feel about our leaders is they're proud and arrogant and self-serving. And I wonder if, from the point of view of the leader, as you think about leadership, one of the things you find yourself thinking is, why do they envy me so much? 
uh, this person who keeps on asking me for the reasons for my decisions and all the rest of it and keeps on trying to second-guess me, actually, let's face it, what they really want to be is in charge. They envy me. That's what's really going on here. Who are they serving? Themselves. Do you think that actually there, there are those kinds of attitudes uh, in the way that we, we approach leadership one way or another uh, in local churches? My, my sense is, I'm afraid, yes. There are loads and loads of brilliant things about Christian leadership in local churches uh, and servant leadership in all kinds of manifestations. Uh, but actually, this is the kind of cultural air I think that we now breathe those kind of twin poles of the fear of the arrogant leader uh, and the fear of the envious follower. Now, at that point, page 4, 223, let's start to think these things through from a a Christian point of view. Uh, And I want to start off, before we get to uh, the the baptism uh, of Jesus, a hugely significant thing, uh, with uh, uh, with, uh, what Augustine uh, writes uh, in his great book, The City of God, as he talks about, uh, this is heading 2231 uh, on page 4, as he talks about two cities, by two cities he means two ways of life uh, here on earth. Uh, And one of the things that I find so fascinating about this is the way that Augustine really has thought through all the issues that we're talking about, about pride, about exploitation, about envy and about rebellion. Uh, Actually, our elder brothers and sisters in Christ Uh, have faced these questions, and what they read is worth reading. What they wrote is is worth reading. So Augustine uh, writes this. We see then that the two cities were created by two kinds of love. The earthly city was created by self-love, reaching the point of contempt for God. The heavenly city, by the love of God, carried as far as contempt of self. In fact, the earthly city glories in itself. The heavenly city glories in the Lord. The former looks for glory from men. The latter finds its highest glory in God, the witness of a good conscience. The earthly lifts up its head in its own glory. The heavenly city says to its God, my glory, you lift up my head. In the former, the lust for domination lords it over its princes as over the nations it subjugates. Isn't that a brilliant phrase, the lust for domination? In the other... Both those put in authority and those subject to them serve one another in love. The rulers by their counsel, the subjects by obedience. And isn't that a remarkable thought for our culture? How does a subject love someone in authority? By being obedient. The one city loves its own strength, shown in its powerful leaders. The other says to its God, I will love you, my Lord, my strength. Now, at that point, you find yourself thinking the earthly city and the kind of love that it has there is simply a parody of the real thing. Love is there, all right, but it's love of self, not at the other. Love is taken from its true purpose, which is to be directed towards other people, and twisted back for itself. It's like one of those awful kind of stories uh, where someone is a trustee of somebody else's fortune. And the trustee is there to guard the fortune for somebody else. And actually what the trustee does is take the fortune and embezzle it for themselves. Created with the capacity for loving other people, we've taken it and turned it in uh, on ourselves. 
Now, it's at that point, with that idea of love of self rather than love of the other, that we turn to the baptism uh, from Matthew 3, uh, verses 13 to 17. Now, uh, for, for Augustine, this is one of the most significant Trinitarian passages you can have, really. Uh, it's a favourite text for him. Why? Well, a number of reasons, but first of all, if you're simply thinking in terms of what the Trinity is, you've got all three persons, as it were, on deck at the same time. Uh, and that means, of course, that, uh, uh, it, that there really are three. Every now and again in church history, the idea has kind of surfaced uh, that uh, actually with the Trinity, what you've got, as it were, is one person uh, playing three different uh, roles. Has anyone here seen that great Alec Guinness film, Kind Hearts and Coronets? Anyone? Yeah? Yeah, good. Some of you have. Great. Uh, okay, let's try and think of another example as well, uh, because I think we probably want to go for more than four or five. Um, no, let's stick with Kind Hearts and Coronets, because I can't think of another one. Uh, kind Hearts and Coronets, you have Alec Guinness playing a number of different roles. So he is there uh, as a, a hugely aristocratic uh, grandee at one point, uh, as a strange kind of suffragette person uh, at another point. He plays all the different roles. And some people have said, well, actually, God's a bit like that, uh, that he plays the father as one role at one point and the son as another role at another point. And we know that's not true because as we look at the baptism, all three on stage at the same time. But look, says Augustine, look at what happens. Jesus is baptised. Why is he doing that? Well, he's the one who's baptised, not the father or the, or the spirit. And he does so in loving submission to his father. The father is doing something else. He is the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. I am well pleased with him. What's he doing? Well, of course, at that point, you find yourself thinking he is marking his son out, he is declaring his love for him, and he is pointing us to him. What does the father want to do? Actually, he wants to point to his son and not to himself. What's the spirit doing? The spirit is doing something else again. Uh, the wor words aren't involved at this point, but what the spirit is doing is, again, uh, something different but similar to the father in designating the son descending on him, fulfilling the Old Testament promises about uh, uh, the Messiah being the one who is full of the Spirit of God, marked out by him. So you've got all three doing different things. They're not, as it were, independent things because they're all connected, aren't they? They're all connected. They're not done, uh, as it were, without uh, each other. They're done in connection. Uh, with each other but they're genuinely different and last point they're looking to each other they're acting for each other and they're pointing to each other it's all to do with the other person and it's not to do with self-aggrandizement hugely significant and for Augustine that is the, the pointer to the way that the persons of the Trinity relate that if you like, you've got a triangle where everybody is pointing to the other two, one way or another, not to themselves. They're content to be pointed to by the others, but not pointing to themselves for their own sake. That takes us uh, to uh, uh, the, the, the next heading, 2233, 
that actually as you think about the Trinity and as you think about the baptism, what you're faced with with the persons, three persons of the Trinity is there is no private love. That's to say a reflexive love, a love that turns in on itself. No love, in other words, like the earthly city. So, this is Richard of St. Victor. Uh, Richard of St. Victor writing in the uh, Middle Ages in Paris, but actually he is Scottish. Uh, And uh, uh, at that point, uh, I rather like to think of Richard of St. Victor having an accent like Sir Alex Ferguson. (laughs) For nothing is better than charity. Uh, And I'm not going to go on with that because I've got three more talks to do and is playing havoc with my vocal cords already. For nothing is better than charity, that's to say, uh, love directed towards other people. Nothing is more perfect than charity. However, uh, uh, for for one one is properly said to have charity... uh, Sorry, this is a misprint here at the foot of page one. Instead of to one, it should be no one. No one is properly said to have charity uh, on the basis of his own private love of himself. And so it is necessary for love to be directed towards another for it to be charity. So if God is going to be perfect, the kind of love that he has is going to be other person love, not reflexive self-love in that kind of way. How is that possible? Because he's Trinity and not just one person. That would be uh, one of the things that you'd want to, to sort of seriously raise uh, in, in the whole question of uh, uh, the, the God of Islam, wouldn't you? You'd find yourself thinking, at best, the love that you've got there of, uh, that, that Allah has in eternity is a self-love, not an other-personed love. This love... that the persons of the Trinity have for each other is an aspect of God's perfection. It's other-personed. And what's more, it's a shared love of another. Now, this isn't, I think, sort of very obvious, but actually, let's just stop and think. Uh, What Richard is getting at here is that the Father and the Son, for instance, join together in loving the Spirit. His word in Latin is condiligentes. They love another together. So when he writes this, when two love each other mutually and give to each other the affection of supreme longing, when the affection of the first goes out to the second and the affection of the second goes out to the first and tends as it were in diverse ways, in this case there is certainly love on both sides, but it's not shared love. Shared love is probably said to exist when a third person is loved by two persons harmoniously and in community, and the affection of the two persons is fused into, uh, into one affection by the flame of love for the third. And similarly, you'd want to say that father and son join in being loved by the Spirit. They are loved together by the, the other person. Now, just... Stop and think about that for a moment, because it's one thing to say it, but think how radically different that is from most of our experience of love. Most of the time, uh, unfortunately, uh, we tend to compete, don't we, for for love. Uh, There is that sense uh, that if you're loving that person that much, uh, then you're loving me less. It's very easy at that point for there to be a sense of envy, isn't there? 
Isn't that exactly sometimes what happens uh, in a family uh, when one child uh, feels that uh, as, the, as the parents love uh, their, their brother or their sister, that somehow or other they're loved less? That kind of way. But here uh, we're talking about uh, not just an acceptance that person A loves person B as well as person C, but the person C joins with A in loving B. Person C rejoices in the fact that person A loves person B. What's so conspicuously absent here is envy, isn't it? And I'm sorry that I have to put this in in, in negative terms, but it does seem to me that, that that's one of the clearest ways of understanding how wonderful this is. That as you look at the Trinity, you're looking at a community of love, yeah, but it's a community of love without envy. And that is so contrary to our experience. And it's so central for questions of relationship and leadership as, uh, as well. Envy, of course, one way or another, uh, and this is a, a Thomas Aquinas definition, is sorrow at another's good. I think it's a great definition. And it's terribly easy, isn't it, uh, as you see somebody else being given a good like love to feel sorry for it because actually you want it for yourself. And in this toughest of tough cases uh, about how sincerely do you love someone when you're happy for somebody else to love them as well and you join with them in that and you don't resent the fact uh, that, uh, uh, as it were, uh, love's being offered to them that could have been offered to you or whatever it happens to be, don't you find yourself amazed at the perfection of the network of love in the triune God? And of course, that network of love uh, is, what I was going to say is asymmetrical, because the Father loves as a Father, the Son loves as a Son, and the Spirit loves as a Spirit. That means you've got this, this kind of permanent set of, infinite set of variations, really. So you have the mix of a, a shared love of Father and Son, the mix of uh, Son and Spirit, the mix of Spirit and Father. And, and so on. All these different shades of shared love. And as the father offers his paternal love, he offers it without envy. As the son offers his sonly love, he offers it without envy. And as the spirit offers his spiritual love, he offers it without envy. One of the things that we're going to be doing in the next three sessions is to take those different kinds of love that the three persons uh, offer. Obviously, they're connected uh, because they're all aspects of divine love. But we're going to take those three different aspects and see how that might actually illuminate our patterns of leadership or of being led-ship. Because, of course, in some ways, uh, most of us uh, are both. Uh, exist in both capacities one way or another, both as leader uh, and as led. So that's what we're going to be doing. But behind it all lies this, to my mind, huge and wonderful picture of the triune God with this variegated uh, 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 picture of, uh, of different kinds of shared, 
unenvying love. Let's pause there. Uh, We need to have uh, coffee. uh, And uh, if you've got questions about this kind of stuff, then grab me or come to the question and answer session this afternoon. But let's leave it there.